Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the unceded lands where I am today, the Awapakal and Waramai people, and pay respect to elders past and present. Today's guest, Alan Fife, is from Mandura, Australia, the unceded country of the Binjareb Nation. His verse and prose can be found in a, a very wide range of literary journals. He was inaugural editor of UWA creative writing journal, Trove, and a prose editor for American web journal, Unlikely Stories. He won the Karl Popper Philosophy Award, was shortlisted for the Judith Wright Poetry Prize, commended in the Tom Collins Poetry Prize, has been selected as a Western Australian and Poets Inc. Emerging Poet for 2022 and 23, and very recently T, uh, which was shortlisted for the TAG Hungerford Prize in Australia and the Chaffinch Prize Aware Prize in Ireland, was also shortlisted in the Western Australia Premier's Prize for an Emerging Writer. Alan is currently a PhD candidate at the University of Western Australia, where he's writing a novel in chiastic structure. We'll talk about that a bit more later. Uh, his, his debut poetry collection, God Sleep in Chaos, is forthcoming with Gazebo Books in 2024. And on top of all that, he is karate instructor to the stars. I swore I'd use that, Alan. <laughs> so welcome. Hi, Maggie. Good to talk to you again. Coming from uh, Wajak Noongar land here, um, yep. to whom I pay my respects. Um, over in Bolo or Perth, as uh, as it's widely known. Wonderful. So good to have you on the show. And uh, before we get to the books, the gossip in me just has to know which stars you teach karate to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't teach karate to oh. any stars at all. I used to be in martial arts. Yeah, yeah. I, I got a black belt. Um, I gave it up years and years ago. It was something that uh, filled my time. Um, from, I guess, 19 years old to 25. Um, a bit obsessive about that and uh, writing kind of Zen poetry and Zen philosophy and that kind of thing. It was, um, I don't know, I, I, the mind looks for something. Um, but uh, no, I don't do it anymore. I thought that was kind of funny because people always introduce me as author and poet and I thought, well, that's... that's um, that's kind of the same thing, isn't it? It's all an act of writing. Um, I don't see the difference. I thought like novelist and poet, but then I thought, no, nah, well, maybe I want to be um, writer, explorer and karate instructor to the stars is probably my preferred introduction. So thank you for being the only one in, in the world who uses that. <laughs> That's right. Well, you're going to have to find some stars now. I'm just expecting it. Kylie is looking for karate lessons. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I don't know that. I'd be happy to teach Kylie um, some martial arts and self-defense, yeah. although I'm sure she's a lot fitter than I am and can probably defend herself a bit better at this at this point. Yeah. Look, uh, you know, I think we could have a whole conversation on bios and uh, and and the way in which we're introduced. Uh, the whole introduction. Yeah, you know, there was process. a fantasy. There was a fantasy author I used to read when I was a teenager called Barbara Hambly, mm. and she had one of those bios it was and it was like former model and karate karate instructor i always thought that was a cool bio 
Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting to see, you know, how how it varies per event and what people choose to include and what they don't and, the, you know, the number of awards that they want to list or don't list. And uh, anyway, it's a, that, that's probably a conversation for another day, but it is something that's mm. I always find quite interesting. And I always find it interesting how the genres are broken as well. You know, again, writer and poet. <laughs> wow, both yeah. a writer and a poet. You must be multi-talented. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure I write down those poems, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But um, that's, uh, to me, it's all kind of joined up. Uh, I think that any intentional composition is an act of, that involves poetics of some kind. Even if you're writing a good business email, you know, there's a poetics to it. Um, uh, that's what we call our approaches to writing. Um, and if you study poetics properly, then you discover how much crossover there is between the one and the other. Yeah, look... Yeah, and let's lean into it because you know if you if you do write uh, do a piece of writing as both of us do really I think um, that is kind of cross cultural cross genre let's say you know so you might write yeah. just for example a poetic memoir right a verse memoir or you might write a novel which has characters that are actually poets and and a poetry book that has characters that are in a novel you know there are yeah. really you know there are some interesting I guess ways in which. Yeah we use these labels to delineate things that may, you know, the, the delineation itself is maybe a, a creative act, you know, that takes something that is not delineated and decides that it's going to, you know, you're going to put a line here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it goes back to Aristotle, um, Aristotle's poetics, uh, where he kind of, uh, being the first person to kind of define genre, um, uh, whereas the people who were around writing at the time didn't necessarily know about that. You know, mm -hmm. nobody uh, thought there was really much difference between a history and an epic poem or anything. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they all thought they were kinds of poets, including Plato. You know, those are those are dramatic dialogues. They're, they're pieces of literature rather than uh, straight-up philosophical arguments. So, yeah, it can be a little artificial. Um, it can be for people's comfort, you know, the... Somebody wants to think they're writing a crime novel. I've read some reviews of stuff, though, that has been sold um, as, you know, a crime novel or fiction or whatever, and um, the critics can get terribly angry when it doesn't meet the genre expectations. I find that interesting that people don't like to be surprised so much. Yeah, I, there I, maybe there is uh, there's a bigger cognitive load, right, if you can't rely on certain tropes. Um, yeah. when you go into a, a work. So some of those tropes can actually, maybe they, they make things less work because you know what to expect at certain points. And if you yeah, can found exactly. those, I mean- it all depends on, yeah, yeah, it all depends on what you're coming to the place for, I exactly. suppose. Yeah, that's yeah. right. If it's pure relaxation, like watching a television show or whether you really want to be kind of opened up a little bit. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, different people, I suppose. I never mind when something surprises me. I like, you know, trashy superhero things. Um, but then when I go into one of those for mental relaxation and it makes me think anyway, I'm kind of delighted by yeah. that, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm the same with sci-fi, you know. I just, uh, if you read a sci-fi book and you just think, God, the inventiveness there, I almost feel like I yeah. can't. <laughs> I've got to take a little break here before I get back into, you know, a relationship book. <laughs> Because <laughs> I've just been surfing the rings of Saturn and it's really hard to come down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
anyway, uh, look, before uh, uh, before we go any deeper into tea, and I really do want to go a little bit into tea, um, can I get you to just read a bit from the book just to give us a, a flavor of the, the prose? Uh, sure, I will. Um, so this part that I'm going to read might give you a little sense of the plot. Um, uh, the main character, say, uh, steals some drugs from a dead man, steals some crystal methamphetamine uh, from a dead drug dealer called Galt. Uh, and has to go to Gulp's friends for wholesale supplies. Any entrepreneur is going to need a wholesaler. Um, and they start to kind of use him as a, as an emotional uh, and entertainment uh, replacement uh, for their dead friend. So here we go. What happened earlier was more of a snap, snapshot of the group's soul, Gulp's crew. They had gone out for a piss himself. Gentleman at the back of the shed. The shed was a sweatbox on a summer night, so the open air was sweet relief. Palm fronds from the neighbouring yard made pleasant scritch-scratching on the steel roof. He stayed a while after he zipped up, fantasising about leaving without a word, but there was still work to be done. He came back around the side of the shed into the suburban backyard, a rectangle of grass the same as all the other suburban backyards, girded beside, behind and in front of it and all along Greyhound ter Terrace, which Cardo's house fronted. The courtyard between the shed and the brick house was littered with Cardo's finds from demolished shacks and a clear area with adventure toys where his children played. T leaned on a pink pr plastic princess castle and took a breath before he went back in. The night had gone deep and dark enough so that the wild birds didn't stir, so that no one noticed him until he slid the door open on the trail. It was plain by the way everybody stopped talking and turned to look at him that T had walked in on the edge of a conversation and he was the subject. Luke was the first to break through the spell of interruption. Make him do it, she said. Let's do this right. DV reached into her pocket and brought out something folded in tinfoil. Like Gulp would have done or it won't be right. She opened the tinfoil on the bar and revealed three green pills with the Mitsubishi logo etched on top. Cardo nodded and took a battered grey guitar down from the wall behind him. He handed it to T and told him to tune it. A framed photograph of disgraced Eagles player Jim Levy was laid on the bar and Gobbo crushed the pills with the back end of a butter knife he found on top of the fridge. DV rolled up a $10 note from a purse, separated a line of the green powder and snorted it in a single swoop. The others followed except Trance who was keeping quiet at the end of the bar. The guitar was a wreckage. Mismatched strings and a piece of an ice cream bucket cut to form a makeshift bottom bridge. But T managed to screw the pegs into something like an open G. When it made a sound that was close to musical, Cardo offered T the last two lines of green powder. He ain't really my stuff. You said that about beer, but you're drunk ten of mine, boy. Come on, you got to snort. We're doing something magical and rad. T took the rolled up ten and looked down at the photo of Jim Levy. Caught in mid-run with the ball out in front, aged somewhere near 25 and glancing behind him at the oncoming opposition. Big at the front of the frame against stands full of thousands of supporters in the end distance. Crystallised as the icon he was before recreational drugs cost him his right to play. Carter ordered, look Jim Levy in the eye. So he took two green lines, left nostril, right nostril. There was a dripping sensation at the back of his throat that Tasted like bitter powder and post-mixed Pepsi syrup. It was only a few seconds before his vision started juddering and his left eye began to twitch. 
He perched on a stool by the bar and fiddled with the guitar strings, trying to go into himself. He counted meth, beer, pot, ecstasy. He remembered it was Wednesday. The sound of the guitar was absorbing and filled the whole of his attention. Thoughts flowing with only a dull sort of light. He wondered what it was like to die. It's time! The screech of DV dragging a stool across the concrete floor broke through T's number retreat. She set it up in the bare middle of the shed and gestured for him to sit there. What's going on? Cardo smiled a sharp smile. You want to be new Gulp? This is what Gulp does. Gulp snorts a and plays us a song. It's a good song. See, when we say poet, Gulp was a kind of a life artist. Poetry of the moment, you know. He'd make a sculpture out of dead matches, maybe try to churn a lady with a song he pulled out of his ass. You do something like that now, new Gulp. You wrote stories in the paper. I saw you playing blues at Redcliffe. Don't fucking fool like you can't do it. What the fuck? I'm not Gulp. Gobbo clapped his hands three times, sharp and loud. Line up on that stool. So he went to the stool and sat with the twanging guitar on his knee, brushing his fingers over the open cord. Okay, okay, what type of song you want? Death song, hate song, protest song, board song, drinking song, hippie song, Bob Marley? Everyone likes Marley. You have to make one up, Luke said. Gulp makes up the song on the spot. It's always a different song. It has to be funny. Sing a new song, you gulp. Gulp snorts me and then sings a new song. It's always funny. Make it funny. Sing unto the Lord a new song, Gato roared. That's something Gulp says. Props from the Bible. Close the song, T. Don't upset the girls. Great. Thank you for that. There's, there's so much I want to unpack from that <laughs> uh, that reading. It's uh, it's brilliant. I mean, the first thing, I guess the first thing that really strikes strikes me um, with this book, and that passage is a, a pretty good indication of it, is the balance between kind of ominous, <laughs> you know, impending doom, impending death, really. It's a scary situation, <laughs> right, that you put to in. Um, and absolute, oh. like, gallows humor, almost, uh, you know, almost raucous, really. Oh, um, uh, yeah. It's an interesting blend. Okay. Um, I take it you've read uh, Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning? I have, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, uh, Frankel argues in there that uh, survival in Auschwitz, finding meaning in Auschwitz itself, was um, connected to having a sense of humour. Mm. I think if people can have a sense of humour in that situation, um, it's indicative of the human race's um, ability to to bubble into humour and joy at any given moment, and I don't think when I'm representing um, people on the socioeconomic margins, people struggle, struggling with homelessness, with drug addiction and that kind of thing, as I am in here, that they're just going to be miserable people all the time. People don't take such an extreme substance as crystal meth um, in order to feel miserable. In fact, they generally do it in order to feel better, um, in order to have some fun in, in the midst of a pretty miserable life. So um, I just don't think it would be realism if it wasn't funny, and particularly the social uh, milieu that I'm talking about in here. Um, people make a lot of jokes. Um, so, and, you know, stuff is absurd. You could be like at a drug dealer's house at 3 o'clock in the morning and a, somebody tried, turns up to try to kangaroo jack, a truck jack for 
for methamphetamine. And, um, you know, it's, oh, you, you got a truck? Oh, no, nah, got a got a truck, Jack, now, though. <laughs> like, it's, it's, there's just kind of funny situations. And another thing was I, I'd used, um, I don't know how noticeable it is in there, but I used a kind of an inversion of Camus in there, the, uh, Camus' idea, one must imagine Sisyphus happy, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, again, that's finding joy and humour in the midst of meaninglessness. Um, so I inverted that. To, one must imagine Icarus as a success story. Um, so that type of absurdity is is definitely something uh, I wanted to imbue the book with. Yeah, absolutely. I think it does come through. Uh, I didn't pick up on the Camus reference, but um, it's been a long time since I've read the myth of Sisyphus. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. You know, it's uh, yeah, that's that's brilliant, and and that is another thing that that is going on there, which is this kind of high and low kind of art happening simultaneously, um, which again I love. I love that. Um, you know, we we talked in the beginning about these blurring of of these you know, may be thought of as hard lines, but really aren't, you know, and this notion that you can, you can, you know, have a poet uh, as a drug dealer and have a, a group of, you know, pretty rough gangsters, if you like, um, actually looking mm. for, you know, music, art, solace, humor, you know, or com camaraderie, all of those things in the midst of also, you know, maintaining, you know, you haven't softened them. You certainly haven't softened uh, Cardi, Cardo, you know, you haven't made him any <laughs> less dangerous, <laughs> you know, it, but, but there's still this kind of um, sense of wanting to find some kind of meaning even, and, and that internal external thing as well. So, you know, he's looking for, you know, centering himself, almost a meditation before he begins mm. to play. Uh, and again, having these things happen simultaneously, really, um, it, it's really interesting in terms of a dynamic, it's it makes it complex and, and kind of beautiful, even though it's scary. Yeah, thank you. Um, there is some complexity. Even scary people are human beings, mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that's what I've tried to reach for in there, I guess. The public opinion of meth users is frequently being people outside of that who may be, you know, aren't even related to somebody who's doing it or don't have a friend. Um even people who do have a friend who's doing it are terrified. Um, I don't think that the media, um, popular books, newspapers, um, television news, that kind of thing, really help. I think they reinforce mm -hmm. um, the otherness, the inhumanness of uh, drug users. Um, so while, look, the scariness is real. If you see a guy with his shirt off, like yelling at the pigeons, um that's out of context enough to actually be frightening. I get that. I understand that. Um, but I also wanted to, to confront where they came from. Um, and the only real way to do that was to present the characters, even the very scary and menacing and problematic ones, as human beings with their own thoughts and feelings, maybe their own intelligence, maybe their own ability to make art and, you know, maybe maybe a poet does sell drugs. I mean, we all know poets have to do something else for a living generally. Yeah, that's true. Poetry. <laughs> yeah, fair point. Uh, I, I thought they were, many of your characters were quite uh, Dickensian, you know, really um, just <coughs> Yeah, quite, you said quite that for a review. Yeah, yeah. I thought yeah. that was an interesting writing. I'm a big fan of Dickens, you know. Um, I was like, sometimes people miss out on uh, oral qualities in their books, like sounds. 
Mm. Um, and I always liked how Dickens uh, kind of built his scenes with a lot of sounds in there. Um, it's definitely something I've taken from there. Um, yeah, I'm quite flattered by that comparison because one of the great character makers of all time, really. Um, but, yeah, it's funny to hear how people read it. They, they compare it to all those things. Uh, I, I kind of knew my influences going in, which were uh, pretty easy to state, Camus, uh, Bruegel, the painter, and Auden, the poet, mm-hmm. uh, were the three main influences of, it, of this. And then you get the publishers and you've got to do comp titles and all that kind of thing. And people say, like, oh, it's grunge literature. So you go, oh, okay. So my comp title's now uh, Luke Davies' Candy. Mm-hmm. And then, like, I did publisher... think about Candy, I will say. <laughs> yeah. But that's only, that's only because of, you know, they, I guess some of the relationship scenes. I, I, I suppose it's a fair comparison, really, but mm-hmm. I can honestly say it wasn't on my mind at all, um, uh, that kind of 90s grunge literature. I have read it and enjoyed it. Um uh, uh, my publisher Barry Scott put in the the blurb for it, um, uh, Jack Carraway, which I thought was great because even though I didn't go in there consciously with uh, any of the kind of uh, beat poets on my mind, um, I've got to say, yeah, uh, Carraway and uh, Allen Ginsberg would be formative uh, influences on me. Yeah, so. I like that. Well, I like the Dickens comparison. I don't know. Just yeah, throw them all at me. Uh, yeah, why not? Right, take it. I mean, I think in terms of even in terms of the fact that the minor characters really come across as is quite kind of um, rich, humorous. You know, really quite um, quite boisterous. But uh, you know, tea, of course, is the focus. I mean, I, I do want to talk a little bit as well uh, about um, about Gulp because you know he's the ghost. <laughs> He's the ghost in the yeah. book. He, he doesn't even exist effectively, and yet he is so um, a rich part of the narrative of the book. But um, but starting with T, really, um, like was he your starting point? Did you really feel that the book kind of pivoted around uh, this character, or did, or did it come from some other other place? No, I, I guess the incident was the first part of the book. I think years ago I thought up a book with Gulp in it as the main character. Um, the gulp, I should point out, is the only Jewish character in the book, uh, and I am Jewish myself. Um, so I couldn't really write that story because it was autobiographical. Um, gulp is not an autobiographical figure, so I kind of wondered how to deal with that. Um, and so um, I wondered how to develop the character so that it wasn't me at all being the only Jewish character in the book. Um, so I killed him at the start of the novel. Um I thought, oh, okay, that gets him out of the way. By the time I kind of brought him back as a character, he appears as a ghost in the novel, um, I had been able to develop the character enough so it was nothing like me um, into a new character. So it definitely started with incident. For me, the idea of Gulp's, the opening scene, a sort of semi-comical thing where um, uh, where Gulp's body sort of slaps into the medic that's trying to bring him down the stairs. Um and uh, develop the characters from these two ideas of incident. One, one, one incident was the character T seeing uh, evidence of Gulp's death, and the other one was the character of T uh, seeing a man falling out of the sky. So I had those two ideas of uh, death by suicide and um, uh, magic realism that was kind of metaphorical for self-destruction as well, the, the Icarus myth again. Um, 
And from there, I went on to develop the characters. You do a lot of work off the page. I think um, Kate Noski, um, who's the editor of Westerly here in Perth, uh, said about the book, every character seems to have a childhood. And I think that's uh, I think that's the way I went about them. Like uh, the car dealer who appears later in the book, mm. um, I don't think it's any good to have those sort of incidental characters where they don't uh, sort of have a previous life attached to them, even if that previous life doesn't actually appear in the text. So you do work on that. You do work off the page like, uh, like envisioning... Um, this guy watching uh, John Wayne movies as a kid, um, and that informs some of the speech tags so that you can kind of differentiate the speech of characters. Um, mm. It works into their own kind of personal vernacular, and he says words like citizen at <laughs> old John Wayne films. And I don't know, if you can picture a childhood, you can picture all the kind of connecting bits. I think that's what you need for a, for a story is a beginning and an end, and then the middle kind of fills itself in. Yeah, and maybe it's that childhood that makes me think of Dickens. <laughs> you know, this idea yeah. that the, these characters really come, however minor they might be in the book, they, you know, they come oh. in with a, a kind of something a little more, you know, a sense that there is a backstory. And, you, you know, it, yeah. I guess that gives you material. You can always, you know, you could create another book um, and maybe you already are, but, uh, you know, there's definitely another book around some of these characters that uh, oh, at least yeah. I'm hungry um... for. As a reader. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. I'm glad to hear that. I, I do kind of work in a shared universe. Um, I guess, you know, Marvel Comics are the biggest example of that right now. Everybody's aware of it through the movies that there's a shared universe. I used to read the comics when I was a kid. Um, and, you know, what's going on in one comic kind of affects what's going on in another comic. So I think that uh, Chris Yolkis is another example of it where his character's kind of pop up through other novels. Um, and I think he's admitted that um, that his books are a kind of a shared universe. Um, Stephen King as well. Uh, mm. For me, um, yeah, it's all happening in a shared universe, including, I think, to some degree, uh, my poetry, um, which is weird because, you know, I've kind of steered away from autobiography in this novel and some uh, most of my poetry has become more personal uh, rather than narrative um, in the current collection that's coming out next year, which leads to a kind of scary thought that I might be a character in my shared universe. Um, and I wonder how to deal with that. Kurt Vonnegut dealt with it really wonderfully um, by making up Kilgore Trout, the author character mm. in his books, mm. um, and just really taking the piss out of himself. It's a hilarious character and it's a, it's a really seedy, disreputable character. It's not flattering at all. You know, you can't. You can't really flatter yourself, otherwise you don't do good writing. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know how, how to mentally deal with that. The the idea that I might be a character in my shared universe via the poetry. Yeah, uh, that's a fun thing to play with, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, um, I I do want to come back to to Gulp, and I also want to come back to to God Sleeping Chaos. But before I do, I just mm. want to point out and and maybe just have a very brief talk about one of the things I love most about T, which is <clears throat> the way the structure of the book and the way you layer the story of Peel with with uh, T's story, um, and this ah. notion of trauma as reverberations of oppression and 
colonization, which I think you handle with, you know, a really light touch, but the relationships are so clear and obvious, you know, they, it allows the reader to see those connections. And I think that's done in, in just such a, a deft way in the book. I think, yeah. Um, so Mandra is a character in there. I was aware that I was writing about a place that's really, apart from a few local writers that never really got out of Mandra, you know, you might find their books at like a in the local second hand shop or whatever. Um, there's been no uh, serious literary effort that I know of to deal with the Peel region. So I was kind of determined to make uh, Mandra a character in here. Um, and, you know, it has an older name, which is Mandra uh that the Binjara people called it, which means meeting place of hearts. Mm. Um, for the post colonial entity that exists now, Mandra. Mandra, um, it being a character, I wanted to give it its own childhood. And the, the story of Thomas Peel is the childhood of the modern post-colonial town known as Mandra. So uh, that's why I included it. Uh, the way I included it was, again, much like an epic poem, um, uh, which you'll often find contains these kind of foundation stories. Um mm -hmm. And I'm hesitant to call it a foundation story because obviously the place, the idea was founded a long time before Thomas Peel. Um, so you've got to deal with that when you're dealing with um, with what it is. Beyond that, the the actual found, the real foundation story, if you like, of Manch Goodat, is it's somebody else's story to tell. It's a it's a First Nation person's story to tell. It's not mine. Um, the best I can kind of do is own up to it. Yeah, I think so. But I also think, again, that maybe it's just uh, the way in which the the book progresses, there does seem to be a connection, you know, when you when you create this kind of um, yeah. this terror, right, um, when you do do bad things, uh, even as a, you know, as an oppressor, rather than as somebody who is oppressed, that trauma reverberates and creates a kind of, you know, social problems. It, 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 it you, you don't get off. Most definitely. And, you know, I'm talking about this as a kind of writer. I'm talking about technical aspects. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> for me, really, it's more of a mystic feeling about the place where, uh, where I spent most of my life. Um, it's something in the air. It's something that reverberates. It's something really horrendous that was done that, um, that I can't really shake out of my soul as a feeling about the place. I used to live up the road from where the Pinjara massacre happened. And, um, yeah, I can only mentally compare it, you know, from my own culture as something like living next next door to a death camp. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, something like Auschwitz or, or something like that. It has that same sort of awful feeling to me. Um, so, yeah, um, at the end of the day, I can talk about, you know, writing techniques until the cows come home, but it's just this incredible vibration that goes through me from having lived there um, that I wanted to imbue the book with as well, and that's the best way I can explain it. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it it comes through in the book, and I think it's a really powerful feature of the story that you know that, that this is there and this is infusing, you know, kind of the past is infusing in its way into the present. 
Hmm. But I want to I want to get on to um, Gulp a little bit because he also uh, he interests me so much, and I I know that you've you've mentioned that uh, Gulp is effectively a, a character, maybe the narrator of of God Sleeping Chaos. Um, can you just talk about the, what <clears throat> Gulp's role is in that book, and maybe even read us a poem if you can? Oh, kind of. Um, I had like you asked me like a question earlier when we were talking about the podcast, and yeah. Um, Originally, the original draft before it got edited out um, had Gulp's poetry collection in it. So I kind of thought God's Slope and Chaos was a later development of that. Um, but um, to tell the truth, it's a bit like Theseus's ship. You, you know, that was so long ago now, you take parts out and then replace them with different parts. I'm not sure what parts of that earlier strata are left in there and what parts are kind of... Um, more me, I think it's more me now. Um, although there is some narrative verse in there, um, so I will. I'll read this one. It's called "A Funeral in Pinjara." I think it's a poem that's kind of gold, um, because he's a kind of Pinjara character, um, and it's along those Emily Dickinson lines of uh, of envisioning your own death, if you like, uh, which sounds kind of grim. Um, but like, if you think about death hard enough, you know, you can go through stages of it. It can be grim. And then it can kind of be normal. And then maybe even it can be funny. There was a guy who died, Alex Mitchell from Norfolk, died laughing at an episode of The Goodies. He had a cardiac arrest. Um, and his wife uh, wrote to The Goodies thanking them for her husband dying with a huge smile on his face. So it was maybe me touching death a little bit lightly. <clears throat> or maybe it's gold. Who knows? Hold my half-dead carcass to a teleconference so I can tell everyone I'm not afraid, even though I've always been afraid. Afterwards, lay the sequin shroud and roll me through Pinjara strapped to a fibreglass cow with casters in its hooves. Bake cakes for the children. Throw fruit and nut on the heads of my friends. Prepare the pink meat, cubes of cheddar and varicolored cocktail onions. Arrange them skewered on toothpicks in sacred geometry on the scratched PVC platter and eat them in remembrance of me. Let the pipe band play fuck the police and all voices join, ringing, rapturous, pointless. Scurrilous rumours of me must abound. Let them grow Icarus wings and appear as sparks over a dreaming shopping centre. Spill all the tea. Fine leaf and tip liquor flowing in steaming gushes of my every flirt with evil. Give uncles five-metre clearances for anecdotes. Store soft toilet paper for whatever tears might fall. For my grave goods, 15 rolls. I'll miss you too. Place little dolls in rows to enact plots from childhood space operas. When the ragged knew the innards of machines. When we too knew how to plumb the workings and deduce in stereophonic voice, how every engine could crest the galaxy if only kindness could win. And you, you must face the crowd of thousands I fully assume will gather, and you must lie extravagantly about how unafraid I was, the kind of lies that made me smile, the kind I always leaned in close to hear you say. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and I can hear, I have to say, I mean, I, I love the poem and it is, you know, it is beautifully rich and uh, and picks up on a lot of that kind of, I guess, sense of place that, that comes through the novel as well. But I can definitely hear the Auden influence. Oh, yeah. There's a definite yeah, yeah. stop all clocks kind of feel about it. 
<laughs> someone called someone called my poetry hyperlocalism. Hyperlocalism. <laughs> yeah, love it. So which we, is okay. You know, we are, we are almost. You know. Yeah. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. We are almost out of time. Oh. <laughs> it goes fast. Oh, we are too. We are, yes. Um, but I just want to ask you um, to, you know, it, it, where readers can best find you and all your work and, um, you know, your website, is that the best place to go? Uh, yeah, alanfife.com, if you like. Uh, there's a bit of a blog about the uh, the impact of Bruegel on the, on the book there. Um, there's a Facebook author page. There's Twitter. Um, yeah. I'm about. I'm Wonderful. about. Uh, please Wonderful. go to my website and look up the contact details and um, send me an email to my writer's email telling me what you thought of the book if you if you've read to. Um, I would love to hear to people. I, I love hear from people directly, even if you're angry about it. You know, kind of. Um, yeah, tell me it was terrible. I don't mind that. Like, I'd rather evoke an emotional response of some kind um, than you're just kind of being bored by it. Yeah, it sounds good. I, I will put all those links in the show notes as well. So uh, right. do get, get hold of them. Send an email. Alan wants to hear from you. <laughs> yeah, I want to. I want you to just abuse me and tell me it was like this is this makes no sense. Or say you like it either way. But great. Uh, that is all we have yeah. time for. But thank you so much for joining me today, Alan. And uh, I have Thanks another. Hundred, me, I have another hundred questions for you, so we're going to have to continue uh -huh. this. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Love to talk to you again. Thank you. Thanks very much.